You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. Today, I'd like to talk to you about what we can know about God, making use of the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. And I'm going to cover a number of things, all of which I think are quite interesting, and they include the rediscovery of Aristotle, the relationship of faith and reason, according to Thomas, the mysteries of faith versus the preambles of faith, the way of remotion. I'm also going to talk today about the idea that God is eternal, that God is not composed, that God is not a body, and also I'll raise some challenges to Aquinas' views. It seems that if Aquinas is right about certain things he teaches, then he's wrong about other things that he teaches. So there is, at least arguably, a kind of contradiction in what Aquinas teaches. So in a previous lecture, I talked about how Aquinas moves from effects to cause. So similar to a detective, a detective might gather clues from a crime scene. And from those clues, the detective might be able to determine that a particular person was responsible for the crime. And this is true in other areas of study as well. Um, you can move, for example, from a painting to gain some knowledge about the painter. So this is uh, Michelangelo's Last Judgment. And art historians will tell you that if you study this painting carefully, you can come to know that Michelangelo knew a lot about Greek myths. In the corner of The Last Judgment, you see a picture of uh, Minos, who is a figure from Greek mythology. And there are other figures from Greek mythology in this painting. So you can know, therefore, from what Michelangelo created, something about Michelangelo himself, namely that he had a knowledge of Greek mythology. And so Thomas thinks from creation, we can gain some knowledge about the creator. And earlier we talked about some of the ways to argue that it's reasonable to believe that God exists. Talked about the Kalam cosmological argument and as I mentioned to you in that earlier lecture, Aquinas thinks that this does not work. This is an invalid argument because using the scientific understanding he had in the 13th century, Aquinas thinks that you can't know on the basis of reason that the universe had a beginning. Now, whether he would have a different view today given all the scientific evidence that the universe has a beginning is a good question. But Aquinas did put forward in his own name uh, a number of arguments in favor of God's existence, uh, the first of which, the first of his five ways is an argument that concludes to an unmoved mover. Aquinas begins with the reality of motion and change, and he provides an argument for an unmoved mover. Secondly, he begins with the reality that there are some things that are caused and argues to an uncaused cause. Thirdly, he begins with the reality that there are contingent beings, beings that get generated and also can be corrupted. And he argues from that to the existence of a necessary being. He argues from the grades of perfection in the universe to the perfect being. And finally, he looks at the order of nature and he notices that even non-living things have an orderly way of proceeding. So for instance, water freezes at a particular temperature, paper burns at Fahrenheit 451, and so we can see in nature itself a kind of order. And so Aquinas moves from the order that is found in nature to an intelligence that gives rise to this order. Now, if 
just one of these arguments does demonstrate its conclusion, then it is reasonable to believe that God exists. You don't need all these arguments to work. So if you thought about a detective trying to solve a crime, even if you didn't have fingerprint evidence or that turned out not to work, or you didn't have DNA from the criminal at the scene, if you had um, you know, eyewitnesses who saw the criminal do the act, that would be sufficient for holding that the person was guilty of the crime. So what can we know about God? Well, if one or more of these arguments is sound, uh, what can we know about God? What follows? And even if all these arguments are unsound, we could still learn why Aquinas thinks that they teach us something about God, something about faith, something about reason. So uh, for the sake of argument, let's say we accept at least one of these five ways to argue for God's existence. If we do that, then we can consider other questions like what is God's nature or how do faith and reason relate to each other? So to think about this relationship of faith and reason and to think about God's nature, I'm going to draw today on the Summa Contra Gentiles, a work of Aquinas, one of my favorite works of Aquinas. And the reason it's so important, I think, for today, and in fact, one of the reasons I think Aquinas' works in general are so important for today, is that Aquinas in the 13th century lived in a situation that is, in many ways, very similar to our own situation. So in the 13th century, what happened? Well, there was a rediscovery of Aristotle. And Aristotle was obviously one of the most bright, gifted, and insightful of the ancient thinkers. But for many centuries, Aristotle's works were lost. And only in the 13th century were Aristotle's works reintroduced into the Latin West. And when Aristotle was reintroduced, his metaphysics, for example, this caused a huge reaction among people in universities and the intelligentsia of his age. And so what happened? Well, Aristotle seemed to be teaching that the universe is eternal. That is to say that the universe had no beginning. But Jews, Muslims, and Christians all believed that the universe did have a beginning and was not eternal. So this caused a kind of crisis. Secondly, Aristotle seemed to be teaching that there's just one soul for all people. And this too caused a kind of crisis for scholars who are Jewish, Muslim, and Christian. Because if there's really only one soul for all people, well, then there can't be a final judgment where certain people say go to heaven and certain people don't go to heaven. So Aristotle's teaching about the soul caused a lot of controversy as well. And then finally, Aristotle seemed to deny divine providence. Aristotle thought of God as thought thinking itself. And if God is really thought thinking itself, well, then it seems like God is not thinking about anything else. And that kind of makes sense, right? If God is really God, he would seem like he would think about the most important things. And therefore, it would seem that he would have no concern for earthly lower things like ourselves. But if that is true, well, then the Jewish understanding of God and the Muslim understanding of God and the Christian understanding of God is undermined. So how did people in the 13th century respond to Aristotle's alleged errors? Well, there really were three different kinds of responses. One we'll call rationalism, another we can call fideism, and a third we can call reasonable faith or faithful reason. So 
what is rationalism? Rationalism is the view that reason alone is sufficient. And so the people would say, look, we have Aristotle. He is incredibly intelligent and insightful. And so if Aristotle is teaching these things, well, that's good enough for me. And I'll abandon faith. And faith will have a kind of secondary place, if any place at all. And I'm going to go with just reason alone. Aristotle is incredibly wise. And so I'm going to go with his view and kind of ignore, downplay, or just relegate to Sunday mornings um, teachings that I find from faith. On the other hand, there are some Jews and some Muslims and some Christians who responded to Aristotle with fideism. And fideism would say, look, faith alone is sufficient. If Aristotle is teaching things that are contrary to faith, well, we should ignore Aristotle or maybe burn his works. But we don't need to worry about it because we know faith is true. So if Aristotle is teaching something else, we can safely ignore what Aristotle says. Now, in the 21st century, you have a similar sort of situation where there are some rationalists, people like Richard Dawkins, who say all we need is reason alone. And then someone like Richard Dawkins would reduce reason simply to the scientific method. But on the other hand, we also have some fideists. Some people who say all we need is faith, all we need is the Bible. And so we can ignore reason, we can ignore science, and just go with faith and faith alone. Now, the assumption of both fideism and rationalism is that faith and reason are in a kind of boxing match, a kind of competition. And so if faith has the upper hand, that means reason is denigrated. If reason has the upper hand, that means faith is denigrated. And you have to kind of choose. Are you for faith or are you for reason? But Aquinas rejected this sort of uh, dichotomy that we have to choose between faith and reason. And what Aquinas proposed instead was a reasonable faith or a faithful reason. He said, look, we don't have to choose faith or reason any more than we choose to love our mother or love our father. We can love both our mother and our father. There's no necessary conflict between these two. And in a similar way, Aquinas thought there was no conflict between faith and reason. Now, this is important. There's no conflict, but faith and reason nevertheless are still distinct. They're different. And so we'll talk a little bit about how they're different. So Aquinas thought that there were preambles of faith. And the idea of preambles of faith can be illustrated by means of what you may know about LeBron James. So LeBron James, of course, a famous basketball player, really great. And we can know things about him just through watching him play basketball, right? We can know he's really fast. He's really strong. He's good at uh, the techniques of basketball. And those would all be things that we can know about LeBron James simply through using our reason. And what Aquinas thought is that the same thing is true about God. We can know certain things about God simply by using our reason, by using philosophy. So he thinks that we can know that God is the unmoved mover, that God is the uncaused cause, that God is a necessary being, and other things as well. And those would be preambles of faith, things about God that we can know simply through using our reason. On the other hand, Aquinas talked about mysteries of faith. And so what would illustrate that? Well, think about, say, what you could only know about LeBron James if LeBron James himself revealed it to you. So presumably his own family knows all kinds of things about him that regular people don't know, right? His own family, uh, I imagine, knows what he fears the most. 
Um, his own family knows what he desires the most. Uh, why? Well, because I imagine that LeBron James reveals himself to his wife and to his kids, to his own family in an intimate way. In other words, he tells them things about his heart, things about his inner life that he wouldn't you know, publicize necessarily and certainly wouldn't be clear if you just saw him play basketball. Now, Aquinas thinks that the same thing is true about God, that God reveals some things about who God is that transcend and go beyond reason. They're not against reason, they're not opposed to reason, but they do go beyond reason. So Aquinas thinks that it is a mystery of faith that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is something that's true about God, but it's not a truth that we could know simply through philosophy, simply through reasoning about it. So Aquinas thinks, therefore, there's a harmony of faith and reason. There are some truths of faith that reason can show, for instance, that there is a God or that there's only one God, or for instance, that stealing is wrong. And then there are other truths that he thinks are revealed by God that go beyond reason. For instance, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or that Jesus is fully God and fully a human being. Those would be examples of mysteries of faith that go beyond reason, but on his view, at least, do not contradict reason. Now, you might wonder why reveal things that could be known through natural reason. Well, what Aquinas thinks is that God does this because God wants as many people as possible to know about the reality of God and the truths about God, and that if we were to just rely on philosophy, it would take us a long time and we'd make a lot of mistakes. And moreover, many people don't have the, the leisure and the ability to pursue these questions. Most people throughout most of history were incredibly poor. And so they had to work from the very beginning of the day to the very end of the day just to stay alive. And so as a mercy to us, God reveals things that we could in principle know through reasoning. And so how does Aquinas think, how does Aquinas think that we can come to know things about God? Well, one of the prime ways is through what he calls the way of remotion. This is also called apophatic theology, and it's also called negative theology. And so what is this? The idea is this. We can come to a more accurate understanding of who God is by understanding what God is not. Imagine a detective. A detective begins to solve a crime through compiling a list of possible suspects. And so let's say he has, you know, five or six people that he thinks could have done the murder. Well, the detective is going to interview each one and check out the location of each one during the time of the murder. And hopefully the detective will be able to eliminate various suspects. They'll say, well, Mary couldn't have done the murder because she was off at cross country camp. And George couldn't have done the murder because he was busy waiting tables. And John Paul couldn't do the murder because he was off uh, serving in the Marines in, uh, in Alaska. And he goes through each of the various suspects. And the more suspects the detective can eliminate, the closer the detective gets to solving the crime. And so Aquinas thinks the same thing's true about God, that we can come to a more accurate understanding of who God is by proceeding through elimination, by trying to understand what God is not. And so that is called the way of remotion or apophatic theology, or negative theology. Those are all synonyms. So 
Aquinas believes that God is eternal. And you might wonder, well, why, if we're talking about denial and negative theology and saying what God is not, do we start off with this idea of God being eternal? But eternal is a negative term in the sense of it is denying something of God. It's saying, in other words, that God is lacking a terminus, that God has no beginning, that is no coming into existence, and also no end, that is leaving existence. God is E, lacking a terminus, lacking a beginning and lacking an end. Now, why does Aquinas think that God is eternal? Well, if God is really the first cause, well, then God can't have a beginning. If God is really the first unmoved mover, well, God can't be moved into existence. Therefore, God does not have a beginning if he's really the first cause. And if God is really unmoved and uncaused, well, then God can never cease to be. If you think about it, when we move from being alive to being dead, we're changed in some way. That is to say, if I get my head cut off, I'm changed and I move from being alive to being dead, or I'm caused to go from being living to no longer being living. But if God is really unmoved, and if God is really uncaused, well, then God can never cease to be. But if God cannot have a beginning and also cannot cease to be, well, that is for God to be eternal. That is to lack a beginning and also lack a, an ending, a leaving of existence. And Aquinas thinks that God's eternality is confirmed by scripture. And so here is one way in which Aquinas thinks that faith and reason are in harmony. Faith teaches that God is eternal, not having a beginning and not having an end. And as we just talked about, Aquinas thinks that reason can also establish that God is eternal, not having a beginning and not having an end. Next, Aquinas argues that there's no potency in God. And I want to use Aquinas' own words here to try to come to understand this, this idea, because it's really an important idea for Thomas. So he says that if God is eternal, there is no potency in God. What's his reason? Well, he says the being whose substance has an admixture of potency is liable not to be by as much as it has potency, for that which can be can not be. In other words, if God has potency, it's possible for God to not be in some respect, right? So I have potency. I cannot be in some respect. I can fall out of existence. My neck has the potency of getting chopped off my head, and or my head has the potency of being chopped off my neck, I should have said, and so I cannot be. But God, being everlasting in his substance, cannot not be. God can't have a potency to fall out of existence. And in God, there is no potency to being. In other words, in God, there's no potency to come into existence, and there's also no potency to go out of existence. If God is the first cause, there's no potency in God. So here's what Aquinas says. Though a being that is sometimes in potency and sometimes in act is in time in potency before being in act, absolutely speaking, act is prior to potency. All right, what does that mean? That sounds difficult, maybe. Well, the idea of act being prior to potency is something like this. Uh, my skin has the potency of becoming tanner, but in order for that potency to exist, 
I actually have to have skin. In other words, act is prior to potency. The potency I have of getting tan presupposes and requires a prior actuality. For potency does not raise itself to act, but must be raised to act by something that is in act. So in other words, my skin has a potency to become tan. And if that potency is gonna be realized, something has to act on that in order to actualize that potency. So the sun, for instance, has to be shining on me. And then that sun can actualize the potency my skin has to getting tan. So hence, whatever is in some way in potency has something prior to it. So in other words, if whatever's in potency has something prior to it. So let's use a different example. Um, I have the potency of learning things. I don't know how to speak Japanese, but I could study that. I could move to Japan and I could realize or actualize that potency. But that potency of being able to learn Japanese presupposes that I actually have a mind that can learn things. So whatever is in some way in potency has something prior to it, namely some kind of actuality. But as is evident from what was said above, God is the first being and the first cause. So God can't be a being that has something prior to God actually. God is the absolutely first being. And so there's nothing prior to God that could actualize God. Hence, there's no admixture of potency in God. God can't be, Aquinas is arguing, a combination of partly act and partly potency. And you might say, well, couldn't God be a kind of combination, you know, partly act and partly potency? But Aquinas thinks that's not going to work either, that God can't be composed in any way. So composite beings have a combination of act and potency. But if what we said before is correct, God is not a being that's a combination of act and potency. God is pure actuality with no potency. And so God can't be composite. Moreover, he knows that composed beings are also contingent beings. But as we saw earlier, God is the necessary being. So composed beings are contingent. I'm an example of a composed being. So I'm composed of various parts. But if I got blown up by a bomb, well, then I would cease to be. So my composition in terms of having bodily parts is something that leads me to be a contingent being, right? I can be blown apart. If I'm composed of parts, I can be decomposed. Similarly, a car is composed of various parts and therefore it's also a contingent being. And therefore it also can go out of existence if we take the car apart. So composed beings are contingent beings, but God is not a contingent being. God rather is a necessary being, so God is not composed. Furthermore, Aquinas argues that composed beings need a composer. What does that mean? Well, you think about the car. The car needs to be put together by the car company. There needs to be some, something bringing it all together so that the car is a car. And so composed beings need some prior principle, some prior actor, some prior something that brings it into existence and composes it. But if God is really the first cause, well, there can't be anything prior to God that composes God. And so God is not a composed being. Now here a problem arises for Aquinas, so it seems. If Aquinas is right that God is not composed, well then is Aquinas wrong 
that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Remember, Aquinas thinks that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if he's right that God is not composed, well then, is he wrong that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It seems like a problem. Here's another problem. What color is God? I remember when I first got to uh, one university, there was a big conference there, and the conference's title was, What Color is God? And what would Aquinas say about this question? Well, I think what he'd say is that it is a question that seems to make sense grammatically, but really is a nonsensical question. It's a little bit like the question, how long is the color yellow? Well, the color yellow is no particular length. That question really doesn't make sense if you understand what the color yellow is. And the question, what color is God, is also a question that doesn't really make sense if you understand who God is. So Aquinas thinks that God is not a body. And because God doesn't have a body, God can't have a body that's colored in any particular way. So God is not, on Aquinas's view, an old man with a beard in the sky. God is not a body at all. And therefore, God doesn't have a color at all, because to have a color is a characteristics that bodies have, but God doesn't have a body. So why does Aquinas think that God is not a body? Well, every body, being a continuum, is composite and has parts. So think of your body, right? You've got arms and legs and a heart and a liver, and so it's composite. But as we've shown, God is not composite. And so, therefore, God is also not a body. Moreover, every body has potency, since every body is a continuum, which is potentially divisible to infinity, but God has no potency. So let me break this down. Every body is a continuum that's potentially divisible to infinity. What does that mean? Well, think of your height, right? So I'm six feet tall, and that continuum from uh, my toes to my head is potentially divisible to infinity. In other words, you could chop me in half and then chop that in half and then chop that in half and you could cut, 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 cut and you could potentially keep going forever. But God has no potency. And so God is not a continuum and God therefore doesn't have a body. And with this is demonstrated, Aquinas says, the divine truth that God is a spirit. That is to say that God doesn't have a body, that God is not material. Well, now another problem arises. Is Jesus God? I mean, Jesus seemed to have a body, right? We don't know exactly what Jesus looked like, but from all accounts, he was a human being and had arms and legs and, you know, hair and everything else that any other human being would have. Now, is Jesus God? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you might think Jesus is God, you might think Jesus is not God, but it's pretty clear that Thomas Aquinas believes that Jesus is God. He believes in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, one in being with the Father through whom all things are made. So Thomas believed in the teaching of the Creed that Jesus, in fact, is God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So why does Aquinas believe this? Well, for Aquinas, uh, Thomas believes that Jesus, uh, Thomas believes what Jesus said about himself. 
So Jesus says things like, before Abraham was, I am. That is the name of God. Jesus says, the Father and I are one. And Jesus says, whoever sees me sees the Father. So when Jesus says things like this, then there are really three possibilities. Either Jesus deceived others by conscious fraud. In other words, Jesus knew that the Father and, and he weren't one. He knew that he didn't pre-exist Abraham. He knew he wasn't God, but he tried to deceive others and lie to them and take advantage of them. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is Jesus was deluded. He actually thought these things about himself. He thought they were true. He thought he did exist before Abraham. He thought he and the Father were one. He thought whoever sees me does see the Father. So he was a kind of deluded person who had massive um, misunderstandings about who he was in reality. Now, what Thomas thinks is that Jesus, what Jesus said about himself was true, that Jesus really was who he said he was, that he really was one with the Father, that he really was, in other words, divine. But maybe you agree with that, maybe you don't. But the important part for our discussion here is that Thomas believes it. He believes that Jesus is God. Jesus believes what, I mean, sorry, Thomas believes what Jesus reveals about himself. Jesus claims authority to forgive sins. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He says, the Father and I are one. And Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he himself was deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. In any case, Thomas holds the last view, that Jesus really was divine. Now, does Jesus have a body? Well, Thomas's view is that Jesus does have a body because he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was born of the Virgin Mary, at least that's what Thomas thinks. And G Thomas also believes Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He believes that, that Jesus suffered death. So here's a problem for Aquinas. If Aquinas is right that Jesus is God, then is Aquinas wrong that an eternal God has no potency to suffer and die? Aquinas seems to be contradicting himself, right? If Jesus really is God, then how can God not have the potency to suffer and die? Because Aquinas thinks that Jesus did suffer and did die. So this seems to be a kind of inner contradiction in the thought of Aquinas. In other words, if Aquinas is right that Jesus is God, then is Aquinas wrong that God does not have a body? Speaking of a body, let's talk for a moment about Aristotle's distinction between substance and accidents. We can illustrate this by means of a particular human being, Socrates. So Socrates, you might say substantially or in his substance is a human being. He's not a dog or a cat or a tree. And in terms of accidents, what that means for Aristotle are his characteristics like being bald or snub-nosed or weighing 175 pounds. So you can distinguish between what Socrates is in himself, he's a human, and accidental characteristics of Socrates that could come and go. So presumably when Socrates was 10 years old, he wasn't bald. Presumably when he was 10 years old, he didn't weigh 175 pounds. And so we all have characteristics that in Aristotle's terms would be called accidental characteristics. For instance, whether we're tan right now, whether we're in good shape right now, 
whether we can or cannot play the piano, all those things would be accidental characteristics. But for us, substantially, we're human beings from the very beginning of our life to the very end of our life. We never change from being human into being a dog or a cat or a tree. We're human for as long as we live. And by contrast, our accidental characteristics are things that can come and go. So you might say a substance is that whose nature it is to exist, not in some subject or as part of anything else, but what exists in itself. So to be a human being, say, that exists in itself uh, for me. But accidents cannot exist in themselves, but only as part of some substance. So for instance, that I'm uh, tan to a particular degree, or that I weigh a particular weight, or that I know how to play this song on the piano, all those are accidental characteristics. I could lose all those things, I, be, I could become much fatter, and I'd still be a human being. And so my substance remains as long as I exist and only ceases when I cease to exist at death. So are there accidental characteristics in God? Well, either something causes the accidents in God as the sun causes, say, me to get tan, or one part of God acts on another part of God to cause those accidents. But both of those are impossible, right? So there can't be something else causing something in God because God is the first cause and God has no potency for something else to act on. And one part of God can't act on another part of God because God is not composed of parts. God doesn't have one part that could act on another part. So in God, there are no accidental characteristics. Accidents, moreover, presuppose potencies. That is to say, my accidental characteristic uh, to become tan presupposes that I have the potency of gaining tan, or the accidental characteristic I have to weigh a particular weight, um, say to gain five pounds, presupposes the potency to be able to gain five pounds. So if you have no potency, you have no accidental characteristics that ride piggyback, as it were, on top of the potency. So there are no accidental characteristics in God. So let's conclude with some objections to the views of Thomas. One of the objections, and we talked about this in an earlier uh, lecture, is polytheism, that Aquinas' five ways seem to prove too much. They seem to prove five different gods. And moreover, why couldn't there be two or three or 24 uncaused causes, seven, 10, or 137 unmoved movers, etc.? Secondly, even if there is an uncaused cause, that seems really radically different than the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And so even if Aquinas were right that there is a necessary being, a greatest good or whatever, there still seems to be an enormous gulf between that and the God of Abraham. Moreover, we still have the problem of evil to deal with. In other words, if God is all good, God would want to get rid of all evil. If God is all-powerful, God would be able to get rid of all evil, but obviously there is evil. Moreover, we've introduced now a couple more problems for Aquinas. If the belief of Thomas is true, that Jesus is God, then is the belief of Thomas false, that God does not have a body? If Aquinas is right, that Jesus is God, well then is Aquinas wrong, that God has no potency to suffer and die? 
if Aquinas is correct that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then is Aquinas incorrect that God is not composed? So in the next lecture, I'm going to take up some of these questions and try to think about um, the issues of God, faith, and reason a little bit more with you. So I hope we can uh, continue our exploration of these important issues. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers.